If you'll go ahead and turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. If you've been with us, you know that we've been working through Matthew's Gospel and uh, we're actually towards the end of it now, but we're revisiting a passage this Lord's Day uh, as we pause in our study through Matthew to address the issue of church membership. I've been writing about this in our newsletter and uh, we're going to pause in the next four weeks. Uh, Look at this issue of church membership uh, by looking at four questions. And the question that we're going to look at today is, is church membership biblical? And we're going to look at what does the Scripture say about this in hopes that we can better understand it. So to do that, we're going to go back to Matthew chapter 16, uh, beginning in verse 13, and look at a passage uh, that we looked at back in February, and specifically look at what this says about the church and the establishment of the church, and then kind of look at a survey of Scripture overall uh, to see what happened up until this point and what happened after this in regards to Jesus' establishment of the church. So let me read these verses for us and then pray for our time in God's Word this Lord's Day. Matthew chapter 16, this is what God spoke through His Holy Spirit. He inspired Matthew to pen these words uh, that he witnessed Christ saying. Beginning in verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Let's pray for our time in God's word this morning. Father, as we have gathered and and sang already, uh, we are here to worship you, uh, to adore Christ today. And so, Father, I pray that You would help us through Your Holy Spirit to do that. Lord, uh, I know in my own mind and in the mind of many, uh, oftentimes our minds will scatter and wander during these times. But, Lord, we need Your Spirit to hold us close to Your Word. We need Your Spirit to teach us, to awaken us, to enlighten us, to reveal truth to us. And so we pray that Your Spirit would be at work among us today as we seek to worship the name of Christ Jesus it's in His name that we pray. Amen. Well, I know that uh, our first service today, we had a, a few extra folks there uh, because today is the day of a big game. We have Louisville and Kentucky playing and you can look around the room and kind of figure out who's on which side uh, based on what you guys are wearing. And it was the same in the, the first service. Uh, those folks, uh, many of them are already on the way up. Maybe some of you will be going up this afternoon and It's a sold-out crowd there in Louisville. There will be about 50,000 fans, 55,000 fans gathered. And it will be pretty obvious if you're there at the game or if you watch on TV uh, whose side people are on. Uh, You will have a sea of red and you will have a sea of blue. It will be easy to determine uh, which team people are pulling for. Uh, An even easier distinction will be not just which team they're pulling for, but, but who's actually on the team, who are members of the team. 
Uh, there's a distinction there. There's, there's members on the field actually playing the game. Uh, they don't just uh, say, everybody come on out and play, whoever's pulling for whatever side. You can imagine the chaos. Uh, some of you watching these games probably wish you could jump in and play them at times. Uh, but, but there's a clear mark between who's a member of the team on the field to accomplish a task and who is the fan base, either they are at home watching. There, there's, there's a clear boundary there between team members and the rest of us. Unfortunately, in the church today, we don't have such a clear boundary. When it comes to this issue of church membership, the lines are a bit blurred. And not just in our church, but in many churches. Here, as I've mentioned before at Bloomfield, we have a membership of over 900 people. But on any given Sunday, we're doing good to come close to 300 gathering with us and and of those 300 of, of you here today, uh, a number of you aren't members of the church yet. And so when you look at those numbers, you realize that, that we're doing good on a Sunday really to have about a, a fourth of our membership actually here. And so when you, you put that in comparison with my earlier illustration, it's kind of like uh, most of our team members aren't actually showing up to the game, uh, much less putting the jersey on to identify themselves with the team. It's not just here, it's at a number of churches, and so we, like others, are pausing to reflect on this, to think on this, and ask questions about this. And to begin to examine, do we need to address this issue? And so what we're going to do here at Bloomfield over the next few weeks is address it just by asking a few questions. Now, the one that I mentioned for today is the question of whether or not church membership is biblical in the first place. And then after we've addressed that, we'll be looking at questions like, should every Christian then join a church? What should a church expect from its members? And what should members expect from their church? The hope is that as we go through these things, we'll have a better understanding of what biblical church membership looks like. Let me just on the front end say this, as we've been having these discussions among our leadership as, as we've started to talk to people about this, as we've already been in the process uh, through our staff and through our deacons of calling a lot of people who hadn't been here in a while and finding out where they're at and inviting them to come back. Uh, there's always those, those rumors and things you hear out there. And, and one I've heard a number of times is this, is that somehow we're seeking to, to, to run people off or to push people away. Uh, let me say two things about that. Uh, one is, it's hard to run someone off who's not actually here. Uh, to, to push someone away who's not actually here. And, and the second thing is this, is that the, the desire, and hopefully what you'll see as we go through the text today, would be that, that we gather in. Uh, that we bring people in. Uh, that if someone identifies themselves as a member of this church, that, that our desire would be that they're, that they're here. That they're among us. And, and hopefully you'll see that as we walk through the Scripture and walk through this series. So, so let's begin by looking at this text and really to understand what's happening here in Matthew 16, uh, you have to really go back to Genesis and to see what God is doing throughout the Scripture. And so we're going to do that as we look at this first point, that point being that, that God has always, through His Word, established boundary markers. God has always established boundary markers. Uh, you can turn back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and you see there uh, that familiar story. God is creating the world and as He creates creation, as He, he makes Adam, 
he establishes some boundaries. Uh, one particular that we see in Genesis chapter 2 is, is there in Eden, he establishes a garden. The text tells us in the east of Eden. And the text tells us that he then takes Adam and places him in that garden. He places him within that boundary that he's established. We know then that he creates Eve. And we know that in that garden, in that boundary, Adam and Eve had perfect fellowship with God. Uh, All was right. All was as it should be. But God in that garden, in that boundary, he established a greater boundary. uh, That boundary of... His word to His people when their need to obey it. Uh, He established a tree there. And He told Adam and Eve they weren't to eat of that tree. He was reminding them that while He had given them dominion over that garden, uh, they didn't have ultimate dominion. Uh, They weren't God. He was God. And as you know from the text, they they disobeyed God. Uh, There was a consequence of that disobedience, of that fall of sin entering. And then here's something that happens in regard to that boundary. Genesis chapter 3 tells us that God then takes Adam and Eve, He curses them, He curses the serpent, and it specifically says, He takes them from the garden, and He removed them. He expelled them. And so we have this picture of a boundary that God establishes. Within that boundary, there was right fellowship with God. And as long as there was right fellowship with God, Adam and Eve were inside that boundary. But once that fellowship was broken, they are then placed on the outside. When we see this theme continue, as you know from the Scripture, God had told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. That's exactly what they did. And so the earth begins to get populated. But we see uh, between Genesis 2 and 3 and Genesis 6 that, that the world is, is essentially corrupt. And so God is determined now to, to, to wipe that corruption off the face of the earth. But there's one, the text tells us, who is righteous. There's one who is blameless. His name is Noah. And so God tells him there in Genesis 6, Noah, I want you to build an ark and I want you to be in that ark and your family. And we see another boundary because God tells Noah that in that ark, He's going to make a covenant with him. He's going to make a covenant with him and his family based on Noah's righteousness, based on Noah's blamelessness. We see God is the one Himself who seals up the ark. Inside that ark, there is protection. Inside that ark, they are saved. Outside of that ark, there is destruction. Outside of that ark, they are destroyed. We see a boundary here. Inside of it, those who were righteous. Outside of it, those who were not. We see this boundary theme continue through the Scripture because if you read the text, you know that Noah and his family get off the ark You know that the world again is populated. You know that many things happen in the lead up to the point where God's people are in slavery. And then there's a great exodus where they're led out of slavery. And during that exodus, we see God giving His people the law. Giving them boundaries, many boundaries. And telling them specifically they need to obey. Marking aside what would make them clean and what would make them unclean. And then there's a specific boundary that we see in the Old Testament during that time. It's the boundary of the camp. Oftentimes you see the camp of the people of Israel referred to. 
And God would say for those who are clean and who obey, they are inside the camp. But when someone was deemed unclean, when they were disobedient, they were then expelled to outside of the camp. Again, you see this boundary marker in the Scripture. Specifically, we see an example of it in Joshua. If you know anything about Joshua, you know that uh, Moses did not lead the people into the promised land because of his sin. And Joshua then is going to lead the people in. Uh, Along the way, he's got to take Jericho. God sends spies into Jericho, and there's a woman of ill repute, uh, Rahab the harlot, who houses the spies, and in return for her protection of them, God protects her through Joshua and his people, so that when Jericho falls, Rahab and her family are protected. And specifically, the text tells us in Joshua chapter 6, that Rahab and her family were brought out, they were protected, but they lived outside of the camp. Now, it doesn't take much imagination to understand that based on her profession and based on her lifestyle, there was some uncleanliness there. And so, while she's protected, she's not allowed in the camp yet. As you continue reading Joshua, though, you find that eventually Rahab and her family not only end up in the camp, but there they remain with the people of Israel all the days of their life. It's a theme, and we see it throughout the Old Testament. Whether it's there in the garden where the boundary is the Garden of Eden, where right fellowship with God keeps people inside that boundary, but when fellowship's broken, they're removed from it. Uh, Whether it's the boundary of the ark, and through Noah's righteousness and blamelessness, his family is protected and placed in the ark, and those outside of it are destroyed. Or whether it's the boundary we see of the camp, where those who are clean, those who are obedient, are inside the camp, and those who are not are outside the camp. We see this theme throughout the Old Testament. The question that should come to mind as we read these things, as we hear about these things, is this. Who can have perfect fellowship with God? Who can be perfectly righteous before God? Who can completely and perfectly obey God? See, there's this tension throughout the Old Testament where we we read these things and we realize nobody can do this. Uh, Even Noah, who's deemed righteous, as soon as he gets off the ark, he sins. Uh, Everyone in the Scripture, apart from Christ, we see sin. And that's why all these things point us forward. Point us to one who would be in right fellowship with God. Point us to one who would be perfectly righteous before God. Point us to one who is truly clean. They all point us towards Jesus. And our need to be in a right fellowship with God through Jesus. Our need to be made righteous before God through Jesus. Our need to be made clean through Jesus. And that's what the Gospel teaches us. The Gospel teaches us that like Adam and Eve and so many that we see in the Old Testament, As we've talked about through the Scripture, we are prone to wander. We sin. And our sin breaks fellowship with God. We, in essence, too, are expelled from the garden. We, in essence, too, are on the outside. But there is one who is perfect. Christ Jesus, who goes to the cross, ultimately for our sin. And when we repent of our sin and place our faith fully in Him, then we can enter into that garden. Then we can enter onto that boat then we can enter into that camp. Not based on our merit, but based on His. That's why it's so important that we understand these boundary markers that God's placed throughout the Old Testament. 
Because ultimately, we come here to Matthew 16, and we see the second point I've placed in your notes there, that Jesus here establishes the church as a boundary marker, as the fundamental boundary marker for His people. Now think about what we've looked at in Matthew's Gospel. Uh, here you have Jesus the Messiah is born. He comes to a point of maturity where he's going to begin his ministry. He goes down to the river. He's baptized by John the Baptist. He then goes to the wilderness for 40 days where he's tempted by the enemy. And what does he do then? He comes and begins his ministry by doing what? Calling disciples. Calling followers. And so you read throughout Matthew's Gospel, you read throughout the other Gospels, and you see Jesus challenging people, challenging people to follow Him, to be discipled by Him. Now this is important, because today, in our culture today, you have many who will say, well, well isn't it sufficient that I just be a disciple? That I just be a follower of Jesus? What's the big deal about the church? Why do I need to join a church, be a member of a church? Well, we're going to unpack that and talk more about that in the coming weeks. But, but just to begin to understand that, let me say this. Up until this point in Matthew 16, you have people following Jesus. You have people who are disciples of Jesus. You have a clear boundary marker in that those are those who don't follow Him and those who do. Uh, even the question we see asked here, who do you say I am? We know that up to this point in the Scripture, uh, there were some who said Jesus was a madman. Uh, that Jesus was possessed by the devil. They obviously were on the outside and not following Him. Then you have the disciples on the inside who are following Him. And yet it's in this very context that Jesus does what? Jesus here establishes the church that we are now a part of. Jesus here establishes the New Testament church. It's not sufficient, I believe, just to say, well, I'm a follower, I'm a disciple, because Jesus Himself is the one who then, with those disciples, He established something for us today. Look again at the text. He asks, who do people say that I am? Peter says what? You are the Christ, you're the Son of the living God. And then notice Jesus' response. First, he says, you didn't figure this out on your own. God revealed this to you. He points towards God's sovereign hand in this process. And then he says, Peter, on this rock I will build my church. Now, this is a verse that has been heavily debated throughout the history of the church over the last 2,000 years. There are some who say what Jesus is saying here is that, that Peter now is given the, the, the literal keys of the church. He is given uh, the authority. That authority would just be among him and the apostles passed down to other apostles. And so you have this high hierarchy that must come from Peter. But I think we miss something if, if we go to that side. I think what we see here and what we see unpacked throughout the Scripture, one is that Jesus is the true rock. Uh, Jesus is the true cornerstone the church is built on. You see Peter himself attributing that in his letters in the New Testament. But also I think what Jesus is pointing to here is this confession that Peter's making. Peter, on this rock, on this confession, the church will be built. The church will be built on those who confess that Jesus is indeed Lord. And that's why it's significant for us when, when someone is a member of our church, primary, foundational, is that they are those, that we are those who confess Jesus as Lord. A number of years ago, I was... In the situation where I was talking to a family, not at this church, another church, about uh, the membership of someone in their family, 
someone who I had talked to, and, and essentially the summary of it would be this, is that they, like I think a number of others, had come to join the church as a child, but later in life they didn't believe the gospel. And they look back on that childhood conversion is not authentic in their own life. And now that they were older, they look back and said, I really don't believe that anymore. They had no problem with no longer being a member of the church. Their family had a great problem with them not being a member of the church. Why? Because there was confusion on this issue. Jesus here establishes very clearly the church of Jesus Christ is for those who confess Jesus as Lord. That's a clear boundary line here. And not only that, but we see in His establishment of the church other boundary language. He talks about keys of the kingdom of heaven. He talks about whatever's bound on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever's loosed on earth shall be loosed in heaven. We see here language that, 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 that lends itself towards this theme we see throughout the Old Testament. There's an inside and there's an outside. That There's an inside of the church and there's an outside of the church. And there's a clear distinction there in the Scripture. Now, so that when you go over to Matthew chapter 18... You see Jesus again for the second time speaking of the church, and he's talking about this issue of church discipline. And in church discipline, what Jesus says is that if someone offends you, a brother, a sister in Christ, they, they sin against you, go tell them about that. Go confront them. Go seek repentance in private. And if they don't listen to you, if they're not open to that, if they don't repent, then, then go get another brother or sister in Christ. Take them with you. Confront them again. And if they don't listen to you then, you, you take it before the church. And then Jesus says this, if they won't listen to the church, treat them like a Gentile or a tax collector. We know from the Old Testament, there's a clear distinction there between the Jews and the Gentiles. You see that carried over into the New Testament. Now, we'll get to a point in the book of Acts where that distinction is broken down. But at this point, when Jesus says this, people understand clearly what he's saying. A Gentile was someone born outside of the family. A Gentile was someone born outside of the camp, outside of the garden, outside of the ark. They are on the outside. But he doesn't just say a Gentile, he says they're a tax collector. A tax collector was often someone who was born inside the family of God. Oftentimes tax collectors were Jewish males who chose to leave their people for financial gain. The tax collectors, uh, we don't think real highly of tax collectors today, but they thought even lower of them then because they were legitimate crooks. They were legitimate thieves. They would often take not only the tax, they would demand more and they would pad their own lives and lifestyles and uh, their, their financial gain through stealing, through thievery. And oftentimes, these were Jewish males. They were those who were part of the family, but they chose to leave that family. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying there is an inside and there is an outside. And there will be those from within the inside who in their sin they choose to leave. And how do we treat them? Like they're on the outside. And it's language that carries on throughout the New Testament. We see Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 talk about when we deal with sin and a brother's life, someone who's apart, who's on the inside. Uh, we, we, we deal with it. We talk to them as an insider. He says, God will deal with the people on the outside. We need to deal with the people on the inside. And so I hope what you see from this is that, that God has established these boundaries. 
And then as we get to the New Testament, Christ continues in that boundary language with saying the church, the church is now the boundary. And those inside the church should be those who confess Christ is Lord. Believers, Christians, followers of Jesus. Insufficient just to wander on their own and follow, but inside the context of the church. And this gets us then to, to that discussion about church membership. Because while the Scripture, I can't show you the, the verse in Matthew where Jesus says, uh, everyone needs to join a local church. I think everything points towards that. And we see this in this last point that I've put there in your notes, that, that what church membership does, what we see it do in the Scripture, is it identifies us as followers of Jesus Christ. Our, our membership in the local church identifies us with Jesus You read through the book of Acts, and what you find in the book of Acts, as you see the New Testament church growing, as you see its foundation, as you see that when Christians are referred to, they're not referred to as believers out here, or such and such Christian over here, how they're referred to is the church. That's the label we see on them in the book of Acts. A reference to a believer is a reference to the church. A reference to the church is a reference to a believer. The letters are to the churches, meaning those Christians in that church. Those names go together. And so, for example, when you think about Acts chapter 8. In Acts chapter 8, we have Saul. The text tells us seeking to destroy not the Christians... Uh, not so-and-so believer, he's seeking to destroy the church. Why? Because that's the boundary, that's the marker. Well, you know in the book of Acts that he wasn't successful. Uh, God had other plans for Saul. Uh, God brings him to a point of repentance and conversion and, and humbles him and now he's going to be a leader in the very church he tried to destroy. And so all these things are taking place and then you get to Acts chapter 11 and you have Peter going to give account of these things, going to report these things to the church. Uh, Not just to a gathering of believers. To the church there in Jerusalem. You go on in Acts chapter 11, verse 26, and you see that Barnabas and Saul then spend a whole year with the church. With the church. Not just a group of believers teaching a great many people. Again, the question comes up then, well, what about this issue of belonging to or or joining? Do we see that language? And we certainly do. You continue in Acts chapter 12, and you see that while Saul is no longer seeking to destroy the church, uh, Satan is still seeking to do that. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 16, the gates of hell will not prevail against it, because the enemy will always seek to destroy the church. Here, in Acts chapter 12, he's doing it through Herod the king who the text tells us sought to lay violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Throughout Acts, throughout the Scripture then, throughout the New Testament, you see this language of belonging to as a part of this membership within the local body. And I think all those things point to an answer to our question that church membership most certainly is indeed biblical. And so the question is, what then do we do with it now? Uh, What do we do in churches like ours where the lines are a bit blurred? Uh, What do we do in a a culture where the lines are a bit blurred? And I think what we do is we lock arms together as the church and, and we affirm who it is we are and what it is we are here to stand for. 
I think we need to mark a clearer line in the sand. One of the things that the leadership of this church did wisely uh, before I came to be the senior pastor was uh, adopted a membership covenant into the bylaws. In fact, you, you find things like this throughout the history of Bloomfield Baptist Church. You can pick up a copy of the history in our library going back to 1791 and you find affirmations, you find statements of faith. And here now we have a, a membership covenant. And I want to read that to you this morning. This is not something we're voting on adopting. It was adopted years ago, but it's something we want to bring to the forefront. It's something we want to have everyone who's a member of this church not only read, but identify with and affirm. To to lock arms together and say, we do indeed believe that membership is significant. And this isn't just about where you're going to show up on Easter and holidays. This is about locking arms together with followers of Christ. Because the gates of hell most certainly do intend to destroy this. And we need to stand firmly in Christ against that great enemy. Let me read to you what our church covenant says. And you can follow along on the screen there as I read. It says, Having been led by God's grace to submit to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and having been baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, I do now joyfully enter into a covenant of encouragement and accountability with other members of this church family. I will faithfully participate in this church in worship, prayer, Bible study, fellowship, service, giving, and the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. I will serve with other members of this body in love by praying for them, helping them in sickness and distress, promoting their spiritual growth, protecting them from sin, and encouraging them to love and to good deeds. I will flee gossip and divisive words, knowing that they dishonor God and destroy Christian fellowship. I will diligently train myself and my family in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. I will strive to promote marriages that reflect the relationship of Jesus Christ and His church. I will seek the preservation of marriages knowing that God hates divorce and I will submit to biblical regulations regarding marriage. I am committed to the great commission mandate of our Lord Jesus Christ and I will seek the salvation of my family, friends, neighbors, co-workers, acquaintances, and people of all nations through loving, bold evangelism and a Christ-exalting life. I promise that if I leave this church, I will as soon as possible unite with another church where I can carry out the spirit of this covenant and the principles of God's Word. Friends, when I first read that, when I came on staff as your senior pastor, I thought, Amen. I mean, praise God. What, what a great statement. But if we can't stand up and affirm this, it's not a statement. It's just words on a piece of paper. I believe that God is calling us as a church to, to take these things more seriously. And, and part of that is we're asking everyone who's a member to, to affirm this. Uh, we're going to have this printed up on a card in the coming weeks and it will be out there in the pews for you to, to have and to read and to pray about. And along that process, we're asking everybody who's a member to, to affirm this statement because we need to affirm this. Not just as a church body, but as individuals within the church. We, we need that accountability. We need that fellowship. We need to lock arms together so that we can faithfully walk with Jesus Christ. The desire along this process, again, is not to push anybody away. The desire is to gather in. And so I would encourage you, as you look around the church today, 
as you look around the coming weeks, who, who are the people that aren't here? Call them. Invite them. Ask them to come. We want them here. We want everyone to affirm this and lock arms together so that we can faithfully serve Christ together as the members of this church that He's called us to be. So not only that we can reach this city with the Gospel, that we can reach this county, this community, and our world with the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is my prayer, and I hope that that's your prayer as well. If you would, stand with me. As we pray for these things, we want to offer an opportunity of response. Uh, perhaps as we've looked through the Scriptures today at this language of, of inside and outside, perhaps someone's here today who realizes they're, they're outside of, of God's family. They're, they're outside of that right relationship with God through Christ. And perhaps God might be leading someone here to repent and place their faith in Christ. Perhaps for someone else, Maybe He's leading you to come and and join this church. Or perhaps God's Spirit is at work in such a way in some of your lives, some of our lives this morning, that that He's just calling you to repentance. There's something you need to go to the Lord right now on and pray about, repent of. Maybe there's someone you need to pray for that's not here. Whatever it is, we invite you to respond as God leads during this time of invitation. So let me pray for that. Father, we do pray that during this time that that we would respond as Your Spirit leads. Father, I pray that we would be bold in our faith, that we would take a firm stand in the Gospel, and that we would invite others to do the same. And I pray for any whose lives You're moving in this morning, that they would respond as You call on them to respond. And we pray for this in Christ's name. Amen.